invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Hosea, as we're rounding out our time with this prophet. Hosea chapter 14, and the words to which I would call your attention come to us from verses 4 through 7, but uh, just to back up a little bit, why don't we begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7 tonight. This is God's word. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more, our God to the work of our hands, in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel, he shall blossom like the lily, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, his shoots shall spread out, his beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Oh Lord, I stand before you a sinner in perfect Lord, in needing your grace myself. And so I ask, O oh Father, that you would hide me behind the cross so that the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ would be visible and apparent to your people. We ask this for his sake. Amen. Now, one of the things that I remember about my childhood is uh, the orange shag carpet that we had for many years. Perhaps you remember orange shag carpet and paneled walls. Uh, and... Uh, uh, attractive things like that. I remember also that we had a neighbor whose name to me was always Colonel Farr. And uh, Colonel Farr obviously was a, I don't know if he was a wartime hero, but honestly I don't. His, I only knew him because his uh, grandson was a good friend of mine. And I always enjoyed when when I got to hang out with my friend Blake and we got to go to Colonel Farr's house. Because when we were at Colonel Farr's, there were things that I didn't get to experience when I was in our home. My mom wouldn't have let us have uh, sugary cereal. We rarely had uh, Coca-Cola in the house. It was just a rare thing. And, uh, but when I went over to Blake's grandparents' house, it was a spacious dwelling with all the modern interiors, a swimming pool, and we got to sit in the playroom and play Operation and Connect Four while we drank soda and ate Apple Newtons. Do y'all remember Apple Newtons? I don't even know if they make those anymore, but I loved them as a kid. I'm pretty sure they had exactly 0% fruit in them, uh, but Apple Newtons were a big treat for me. And I bring that up because... It was just interesting, whenever I was with Blake I, and got to go into his grandparents' home with him, it's as though I was elevated in status. 
And all of these things that I didn't have at my house, I did have at his house. It was sitting in the lap of luxury in some way. Um, I call your attention to that because it's a good metaphor, a good analogy for what we have in Christ. You see, in his company, in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have lavish riches in and through Him by God the Father bestowed on you by the Holy Spirit that you could never have on your own. Because on your own you are polluted and corrupted by sin and your rightful inheritance is is God's wrath. And as we look here to Hosea, I want you to take just a moment to, to grasp with me God's kindness. Think with me just for a moment about where we have been in the footsteps of Hosea through this prophecy. That sometimes we've, we've read passages on Sunday nights that you think, well, you don't read passages like this in polite company. You don't say words like that in polite company. This is, this is not Christian. But God has been very vivid in his depiction of, of the unfaithfulness of his bride. And so, again, as you and I thinking about this, if, if we were writing a prophecy like Hosea, we would probably end it with, and they went off to the place of their doom, and everybody rejoiced because that's what they deserved. But that's not consistent with who God is. God is good. And as we go through the shorter catechism and we think about the attributes of God, He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His goodness. Now, theologically, that category of goodness is everything rolls up under it. Mercy and grace and the love of God all roll up under His goodness. And we see it here in verses 4 through 7, as he, through the prophet Hosea, the man he is called, has determined to leave his people with a promise that they will see his goodness again. In the company of Christ, the people of God enjoy the lavish riches of God we see from this. And in verses 1 through 3, remember just a quick recap, we noticed that, that Hosea there, he's prophesying and, and sort of the people are going off into uh, their captivity with Assyria. And, and as they're going away, Hosea is, is giving them words to remember. Uh, return to the Lord. How, how do I do that? Well, uh, he, he told them what to do. Return to God. Put away from you your sin. Confess your sins to Him uh, and repent. Remember the Lord. And as I was studying this passage, I was thinking, well, now he's moving into God's response. If you repent, here's, God is now promising you what He's going to do when you come back to Him. When you repent, I was going to say, when you repent, you'll find God's goodness is waiting for you and His love. And that's true. But that's not what's being said here. And so the first thing I would just, as we think about this passage, notice the transition. We're going from Hosea speaking to the people, now to God speaking to the people. Do you see that? Notice in verse 4. 
I will. Now, God is speaking, not Hosea. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. Verse 5, I will be like the dew. And you see what God is doing is now he's, he's making promises. And I don't think this has anything to do with whether or not Israel responds to Hosea's last message. God is simply saying, this is what I'm going to do. The perspective changes. And now we are looking at things from God's perspective. We could look at this as as God's response to Israel turning to Him. But I think more likely, this is simply promises that God has given to Hosea for the future. Perhaps Hosea doesn't even fully grasp. In fact, Peter it will remind us that, that sometimes there are pro- prophecies that the prophets would make that they didn't fully understand. They're seeing in a glass dimly, as it were. But we, living now after the incarnation of Christ and His death and burial and resurrection, will try to put a little bit more flesh on what Hosea has to say. But let's notice first, you know, the first promise that God makes is the healing of apostasy. The healing of of apostasy. Healing uh, in Scripture is often used with uh, some sort of physical ailment. So if we went back to Genesis chapter 20, remember there that, uh, that Abimelech was afflicted with a sickness because he had taken Rebekah, uh, not Rebekah, but Sarah, uh, into his palace and God afflicted him and then healed him of that affliction. We read in 2 Kings 8 that King Joram was injured in war and he He came back and he was healed. So sometimes healing is used of a physical ailment. But I want you to notice here that it isn't used of a physical ailment, is it? Notice what God is going to heal his people from. Their their apostasy. Now, there's a little bit of a play on words here in the Hebrew. If you go back with me to Hosea 14.1, notice there just with me one word, return. Return, O Israel. That's the Hebrew term, shuv. Shuv means to turn or return. It's the Hebrew term that means to repent. It's the picture of turning back to the Lord. Turn again with me and and look at um, at verse 7. We see this term again. They shall shuv. They shall return. This is something that we see throughout Hosea. He uses it very frequently, this idea of returning unto him. But here we're paying attention to the idea of apostasy. Well, why do I bring this to your attention? Well, because apostasy, the Hebrew word, is built on shuv. It's meshuvah. And so what apostasy means then is that rather than returning to God, they're turning away. Sometimes it can be translated as a faithlessness. What God is saying is that He will heal Israel's hardened heart. You have turned away from Me, Israel. You are going into captivity. But here's My promise to you. I will change your heart. Now that should wash over us a little bit. God 
will heal the rebellion. It is as though God is going to go after them and in their place of rebellion, before they take a step toward Him, God is going to heal that rebellion. He is going to fix their hearts. And the only condition then is God's free will. Why is He going to do this? Is there any condition in Israel that will prompt God to heal their apostasy? No. This is an act of God's sovereign mercy. You see throughout this this passage, 4 to 7, the emphasis is on what God will do. Nothing can hinder His plan. Israel will not resist it. When God reaches out to them in His time to heal their apostasy, they will be healed. They will come back to Him. And we remember here very simply that God saves whom He will. Salvation is an act of God's electing Love and, and some react with shock and dismay to this idea that you, God saves whom He will. He picks who He will save. Well, yeah. But in its proper context now, at the end of Hosea, what's more shocking to you and me is that He would save this people at all. That's what's shocking. Not that God would would save some, but that He would save any. And so the first thing that God would have us know under these promises is that He is a healing God. Let's notice in the second promise that God gives to His people. It is a free love. Now I hesitate uh, to use that term free love a little bit. I know that I think in the 60s and 70s that had a very uh, different meaning, but if we go to the text here, this is exactly what God says. I will love them freely. I will love them freely. Here's the second promise from God. Free love. It isn't a coerced love. It isn't a manipulated love. He doesn't bestow His love upon His people because suddenly they've come to their senses. He loves them because He chooses to set His love upon them. After He has healed their sin, Calvin, John Calvin notes that God must regard us with hatred as long as He imputes sins. But once He has removed the apostasy, the fatherly love, the fatherly affection returns to His people with the sin healed, God can do no other than greet us with His fatherly affection. And you should be assured of the genuineness of God's affection for you. You should be assured of God's affection for you. His love for you is not an act of of reciprocity. It's not because you were faithful to tithe this morning. It's not because, look, you are the faithful ones who come to evening worship. It's not because you sang loud enough or because you um, did something extra special. You said some extra prayers or did some extra Bible reading this week. He doesn't love you because of any of that. He loves you because He is determined to love you. His love is free love. Free 
love, unearned, unmerited love. It is a zealous and a powerful love that we are reminded in Romans 8, you and I cannot even detach ourselves from. He loves because He chooses to love you. His love is not earned. His love is not coerced. His love does not change. Consider this in light of this context now. Remember, this is all happening in Hosea. This is all being said in the same book where just a few chapters ago we were being reminded the litany of the sins. You're a faithless wife. I hate your children. Nothing but the kindness of God's will could result in a love like this. The first promise, He will heal their affliction. The second promise, that God will set His free love upon them. Why? Because His anger has been turned away from them. And I think in verses 5 and 6 we get a glimpse if it, as it were into the why. Notice a little little textual change here again. We've gone from Hosea's prophecy, Hosea speaking in 1 to 3. In verses 4 to 7 God is speaking and He's giving the promises, I will, I will, I will. Now let's notice again in verse 5 a slight change. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and His fragrance like Lebanon. Do you see the little change there in the text? In verse 4, we are talking about they. There's a plural pronoun. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. And now in verses 5 to 6, all of a sudden the pronoun changes. And no longer is it a plural reference. It is a singular, third person singular reference. He. Now we could explain this very simply. This wouldn't be a change in the Old Testament text. There are many places where God refers to Israel in the singular as my son, seemingly under the representative head of Jacob. Jacob, he, uh, he is my son. I have set my love upon him, even though he's referring to the multitude. We could go to places like Nehemiah chapter 8 where the people come to Him as one man. In other words, corporate worship not being about the individual's expression but the corporate expression of love to God. I think that what we may have here is a hint of Christ. Perhaps that Hosea's vision extends here to the incarnation. And in the middle here, there's a little interruption because in verse 7, notice that we come back to the they. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. I think that what we are noticing here in verse 
Verses 5 and 6 is a hint of Christ, the promise of God's love toward Christ. Not only will God love His people, but He gives evidences of His love. It's one thing, isn't it, for God to say, I love you, for God so loved the world. But He also is pleased to give evidences to you of His love. If you are keen to look for them, Although they have experienced the curses of the covenant, God is telling His people that His covenant blessings will return. The blessings of the covenant will return. But here, the focus of the passage changes to the singular. Let's notice a couple of things here. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. And and just as a contextual note here, the trees of Lebanon, remember, are the cedars. And when Solomon was building the temple, he, he made a deal with Hiram, the king of Syria to the north, and they cut down the cedars of Lebanon and shipped them via the sea. They put these cedars in the sea and floated them down to Israel where they built the temple. His shoots shall spread out. Jerome, commenting on this verse, says that the cedar tree's roots go as deep as the cedar grows tall. Uh, He wasn't a horticulturalist because that's not true. But cedar trees do grow very broad roots. They spread way out. His beauty shall be like the olive and His fragrance like Lebanon. I want you to turn over with me just for a second to Psalm 45. In some of these middle 40 psalms, we get these beautiful glimpses of Jesus as the incarnate King of God. Psalm 45, verse 6, 7, and 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, so we know that this is the incarnate Christ, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Uh, My friend Jim McCarthy was preaching from John's Gospel last week and talking about the woman anointing Christ with oil and this expensive lard perfume that she poured out upon Him and how that fragrance must have lasted. There's so much of this perfume must have lasted and lasted and lasted. Even when He's going up the Via Dolorosa, He's 
covered in this perfume. The, the scent would have just trailed with him, even upon the cross. The scent uh, emanating from him, it would have lasted and lasted and lasted. And what we see is this glorious picture as Hosea wraps up here. This picture of Christ as strong, as fruitful, and as beautiful and desirable. First, we see that God loves His Son. The dew is upon Him. In other words, in all of these pictures, this, this metaphor of this true tree that, that puts down roots, it drinks up the water, its blossoms come forth, it is beautiful, it's a tree that you would find shade under, it has the beauty of the olive and the scent. Like the fragrance from Lebanon. And what we simply conclude from this part is that Jesus is rightly the object of your devotion and your desire. He is desirable. He is eminently beautiful and lovely. And all of His attributes are ones worthy of meditating upon. The more that you and I draw close to Him, the more that you and I experience the riches that God grants us in Him. Just like me going across the, the yard there to my friend Blake's home. There were spacious rooms and delicious things to eat. When you draw near to Christ, the more the riches of God are poured out upon you, the more that you know his pleasantness, His desirableness. And we'll look finally, this, this last part connecting the whole, beginning in verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath My shadow. Now, here is, here's the connector. Because in the Hebrew, it's not My shadow. Uh, the Hebrew words will... They'll add a little suffix. Uh, sort of like if my name, if I wanted to make it possessive, it would be Brian apostrophe S. The, he, the Hebrew will do something sort of similar if it wants to add a possessive, and it, and it does here. And so you'd be right to translate this, they shall return and dwell beneath His shadow. You see, that's the connector. And I think that's why we see 5 and 6 as referring to Christ. This, is, this puts it all together, doesn't it? Hosea, he probably, he, he's looking forward to it. He sees a glimpse of it. But God didn't fully reveal it to him. And he's putting it down. And here it is that Israel, the blessed Son of God, even as we, as we go back uh, to the, uh, uh, earlier in, in Hosea, where he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Here is this son, again being referred to, and they will return. The people of God will return and they will dwell beneath His shadow. What we're learning here, God's people will benefit from Christ's richness. 
God is giving them a new mediator. And in him they have what? They have protection. They shall dwell in his shadow. Ultimately we know that this is a protection from the wrath of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul is recounting the conversion of the, the people in Thessalonica, and he says, you turned from idols to serve the living and the true God, and you are spared from the wrath that is to come. In other words, hidden in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are protected from the wrath of God. You, you have His life flowing in you. Notice, they shall flourish like the grain. Jesus would blossom. Jesus takes root. His shoots spread out. And when you are in union with Him by the Holy Spirit, that same life now flows to you. His life flows into you. This is the picture, isn't it, of, of John uh, chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. His life becomes your life. His fruitfulness becomes your fruitfulness. They shall blossom like the vine. Everything that was said of Him, everything that Hosea said of Christ, His blossoming, His life, now becomes your life. In union with Him. That was all depicted for you this morning when we took of that meal. When you take Him into you through faith, that life becomes your life that sustenance becomes your sustenance. That blessedness becomes your blessedness. And His fame becomes your fame. Lastly, we see that their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Everybody knew, if we want wine, we don't go to Napa, we go to Lebanon. That's where the good wine is. It's flowing there. God is promising His people here very simply this. That when, when the Messiah comes, here's what I'm going to do. He's going to obey me. He's going to be my faithful son. He's going to be anointed with life. He's going to flourish. And when He dies and when He rises again, you will be, through faith, you will be united to Him. And through that union, you will know that same life, that same resurrection life will be yours in Him. And you will taste of it even in this life. A couple of ways we can apply this. One, God has a future and a hope for His people. This is, this is a real a real promise to, to real Jewish people, real Israelite people. In fact, uh, Paul reflects on this in, in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, you Gentiles, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When I take away their sins. We, we just heard that. I will heal their apostasy. God makes promises that he still holds out to Israel. And in fact, even this day, is drawing real ethnic Israelites into the covenant so that they might know his goodness as well. We ought to always remember that we benefit with them in the riches of Christ. Because Israel left God, because of their apostasy, do you see? We have been made partakers of the covenant promises with them in Christ. We are, we are that wild olive tree that's been grafted in to know this life and vitality that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we draw Hosea to a close, let, let's, let's just commit our hearts to basking in the richness of Christ that God was pleased even at this point, even at this juncture when you and I probably would have closed the prophecy and said, everything's done. My wrath is vindicated. Rest in this. That God was yet pleased to hold out promises to you and to His people. Because he's kind and he is loving. Let's pray. Our Father, what a treasure it is to reflect on these words tonight. Truly, they should humble us to the ground. It is only a reminder of the hardness of our hearts that these words um, don't. That somehow in the back of our minds, we were tempted to think, well, I, I deserve this love. I mean, really, I do. We think too highly of ourselves. So Father, we pray now, tonight, and ask that you would help us to draw nearer to Christ, seeing that He is the point and origin of all of our blessedness. Lord, would you increase, increase the life of Christ living in us. Help us to die to ourselves so that we might know more of His vitality. We pray in His name. Amen.